the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back, everybody. This is Zudi Jasser, Dr. Jasser in the house, sitting in for Seth, taking the helm uh, in his absence. I'm honored to share his uh, audience, and thanks for being with me. And uh, uh, always take it as an opportunity to get you caught up on some of the things uh, that uh, are on our radar. And I am uh, not only a physician in private practice, a president of the Jasser Center for Comprehensive Care and Internal Medicine here for over 20 years. I'm also president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy and uh, son of Syrian immigrants. My family escaped Syria in the mid-60s and uh, embraced American freedom and liberty. And after 9-11, having served in the U.S. Navy for 11 years, I felt obliged to give back to my country again, but this time countering the ideology of radical Islam fighting the true cancer within, which is not just simply terrorism, which is a tactic, but rather the ideology of Islamism. And I've talked to you all about that before. And uh, um, as we look back over the summer, last few months, the debacle in Afghanistan and uh, the uh, lay of the land globally, as uh, we have uh, now no longer heard about as if Jihad went away. It did not go away. It's just not being covered. I thought of no one better to talk to about this than Ryan Morrow. Ryan is a longtime friend. He is a he is the director of the Clarion Intelligence Network and finds extremists uh, inside the U.S. working closely with law enforcement. And he also leads the Afghan Rescue Project. Uh, welcome, Ryan. It's great to be with you, Zudi. Thanks so much for agreeing to join me. You know, I think one of the stories, and I follow you on Twitter, and, and uh, you know, you and I have been longtime friends, and uh, I felt uh, really remiss in not personally reaching out to you in the last few months. I've been following what you've been doing heroically. I am ashamed, as, and it takes a lot to do, do this as an American, but, you know, I am ashamed that we have needed civilians like yourself to create networks to get innocent people, innocent Americans, innocent allies out of Afghanistan. I just read an article by uh, another friend of ours, Adam Credo, who said that nearly half of the Taliban's government leaders are now designated terrorists. They are on our designated terror list, half of them. And, oh, by the way, the son-in-law of Assad is driving a Ferrari in L.A. thanks to our open borders. Uh, so here's a guy who's, whose entire family is listed on the sanction list, and now uh, uh, the uh, one of the mafiosos in the Assad regime is uh, driving freely in uh, L.A. Who didn't make, who could not make his way into the U.S. until Biden uh, was president. But tell us what you've done for so many in Afghanistan, and 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 how you did that, and how many Americans are left there right now. Sure. Well, there's about depending on who you talk to, anywhere between 100 American citizens still there, and some say it could be as high as 500. Uh, but those numbers don't include the family members of American citizens who are over there. Uh, so there's these cases where American citizens stay in Afghanistan because they're like, well, I'm not going to 
leave the members of my family that are here and are relying upon me. Um, and then there's legal permanent residents, green card holders, and there's about 14,000 of those that are still in Afghanistan. So those are people who are legally allowed to be here, almost citizens, um, but are abandoned there. Uh, and then, of course, their family members. And then you have the special immigrant visa holders, uh, which are the people who reached a very high threshold due to their work with the United States and have not left Afghanistan, even though they want to. They have the visa to come here, uh, but we're just not processing them quickly enough. We don't have the planes getting them out. Uh, and the reason that they stayed in Afghanistan, because I've heard the Biden administration say things to the effect of, well, we told you, we told you we were pulling out. But at the same time they were saying that, they were saying that things were going to be relatively secure, that if it was going to spiral downwards, it wouldn't be overnight. So a lot of people trusted the Biden administration's projections of that, and they said, all right, well, let's see how things go. And then before they knew it, the Taliban was running everything. Uh, and the numbers of SIV holders that are there, uh, I've seen numbers something like 100,000, 80,000. Uh, I think it's probably more than that. Um, but what I did was really something that any civilian could have done. Um, I just luckily was put in a position where some friends of mine involved in creating the manifest for flights just needed help with basic data ent entry and getting the information on Afghans. And so I used my Twitter account to basically say, who, who are the Afghans out there that have served with the U.S. and might want an evacuation? And then I took their data and then just started putting it into the different systems. And this was before the August 31st deadline when uh, the power of the airport was handed over to the Taliban. So around that time, there was about 1,700 people who got out as a result of, of that data processing. Nothing really fancy on my end. And then after that, there's been about 50 people who were persecuted Christian civil rights activists, uh, even one person who identified as Jewish. Um, and was an activist against anti-Semitism, who were evacuated um, thanks to our help, working with Glenn Beck's group, Nazarene Fund. Um, but now we're in a situation where a lot of the groups doing evacuations have pulled out. Uh, there are so many problems with evacuations. They're so absurdly expensive uh, that it, things are slowing down, um, and, it's, and it's very difficult. So I've been focusing our attention on maintaining safe houses, humanitarian aid, and evacuation through other means. And I would say I agree with you on, on feeling ashamed and embarrassed as an American at what has happened, not just of the U.S. government, but for me, I, I, I hate to say it, even the American people, especially the church, because as I tell everybody, uh, to save a life in Afghanistan, someone who really, really needs it, it'll cost you seven to ten dollars for a month. I mean, I mean that's like nothing to ask yeah. of an American. Yeah. And these these are people who risk their lives for human rights to to help protect the United States. But fundraising for this has been incredibly difficult, and it really shouldn't be. And you know, uh, I'm going to ask a couple things first. It's the, the the story, the narrative is so is so compelling. But yet, but yet, there's those that claim to be American allies, that claim to have worked with us. You know, Arizona is one of the top uh, uh, incoming areas for Afghan for refugees from Afghanistan. And uh, I've talked to folks that just that could not be more compassionate, more loving to want to help them. But they say, listen, these folks are not being vetted. And they're worried. 
So, so what can we do about that? How are we vetting the ones that are getting here? I mean, our borders are wide open in uh, Mexico. We've got uh, how many, a million or so plus a year coming down through that border? So, so uh, I was just telling you, if, if Assad's uh, multi, you know, uh, $100 million families are, are coming through uh, unabated by any treasury or other sanctions, um, how do we know uh, that the Taliban, that uh, Qatari Brotherhood that works closely with the Taliban and others aren't coming through. Well, to be honest with you, you you won't know for sure, but I do I do know that there were certainly Taliban supporters who got onto the U.S. government evacuations before, and the reason I know that is because they had online accounts and other Afghans who wanted to be evacuated saw it and were like, "What the heck is this?" And, and they and they messaged it to me or they tweeted it out on their own. So. Uh, the U.S. government's vetting procedures definitely are inadequate, but they were exceptionally inadequate because of the rush and disorganization of what was going on before August 31st. Uh, the impression I get now is that the vetting is is better, but it would ideally what they should do is pair their efforts with NGOs, um, at groups like yours, groups like mine, uh, because we can detect the ideology. Well, we can put more time um, and experience into specifically saying, look, this person may seem good, but it seems like they might be lying about this, or they don't donate or did some activism for a group connected to the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, we can take into account those ideological factors and decide who we want to invest our time in in helping, um, whereas the government seems to be more focused on uh, things like criminal background checks, to whatever degree you can even do that in Afghanistan, known terrorist ties, terrorist databases, all of which are inadequate. Uh, I mean, so I think the solution really is teaming up with uh, people like us, but especially you. I mean, <laughs> you're a devout Muslim, and no one can spot a, a hidden Islamist better than you can. <laughs> and But but let me, let me tell you, I mean, this administration, which has somebody like uh, Rima Doden, who is a Hamas supporter running interference with uh, uh, the lobby on Capitol Hill and the White House, uh, which is basically this administration that uh, uh, said somehow the Taliban could be trusted, this administration that said that the U.N. should begin giving hundreds of millions to the Taliban to help them with relief because of the impending crisis. Do you think they're going to work with Islamists or with our group? <laughs> the Islamists are the easiest to call on the phone. Uh, they've definitely been a, a worse administration than I anticipated. Absolutely. When we come back, we'll continue talking to Ryan Morrow on his expertise on Afghanistan and also uh, to uh, look at uh, the lay of the land globally when it comes to the countering the jihad from Iran on. We'll be right back with Ryan Morrow on the Seth Leapson Show. This is Zudi Jasser. This is Zudi Jasser and the chair for Seth Leapson. Honored to be with all of you and uh, to all the vets out there, a early happy Veterans Day. Thank you for your service. God bless you all. And uh, we're trying to keep our country safe in every way we can, each one of us. And one of the people I think who's given selflessly uh, more than uh, most people I know is Ryan Morrow. He is the uh, director of the Clarion Intelligence Network, which finds extremists inside the U.S. for law enforcement. And he also leads the Afghan Rescue Project. Thanks so much for being with us, Ryan. Thank you, Zudi. Hey, so, you know, I think... One of the things that came across a lot of the folks, as you mentioned at the outset uh, uh, a little bit ago, is that there was this perception for many that, uh, you know, not only was it that they had to navigate all these Taliban checkpoints to get out of Afghanistan, uh, but 
that they wanted to stay back because they weren't going to leave their family behind. And until they figured out how to get their entire family out, uh, to leave their family behind meant that they, they were not only not going to see them again, but that they probably would not survive as many families that helped the Americans, that helped uh, um, the uh, national Afghani military and others uh, against the Taliban uh, were not going to be saved, despite what the Taliban may have been saying at their fake press conferences that they were so quick uh, to give. But then those who waited, as you noted, now initially there was a bit of a few weeks that might have been safer, but now everybody, it's getting more expensive and they're being abandoned. So uh, they sort of got, they're now stuck. And uh, uh, some heroes are emerging. There's that area in Afghanistan that uh, I think the the uh, Panjir province that uh, is uh, the rebels, if you will. And what people don't realize is that there's a civil war emerging. So what can the folks that are late do? I know you said partner with NGOs. That's one thing. Uh, but uh, is the world going to do anything or are we going to start sending money now to the Taliban and, and recognize them? I think that we will do nothing until there's no other viable option. Uh, at some point, we're dealing with such evil that cannot be appeased that I, I, I see no other scenario except for U.S. forces going back in, helping the National Resistance Front, which is basically the modern version of the Northern Alliance that helped us topple the Taliban in 2001. Uh, because either threat's going to gather to such a degree that other countries support them, and then the U.S., just because of pressure, does a little bit of something to get involved, or there'll be some series of attacks or one big attack on American soil due to the Taliban harboring a terrorist group, and then we're going to be right back to 2001, and and it'll be as if all that work and sacrifice never happened. Uh, and so I would say if someone wants to get involved, definitely follow the National Resistance Front um, on social media, um, when they get organizations up and running, see how you can support them. Uh, if you want to give to the humanitarian aid uh, efforts uh, that we're doing, uh, you can just follow me on Twitter. Uh, my name's Ryan Morrow, M-A-U-R-O, and you can see the link there in order to donate because, again, 7 to $10 can save the life of a hero uh, by getting them into a safe spot um, and doing other things that we do to keep people safe, and it's not your average person. It's, it, we focus specifically on the severely at-risk people who risk their lives for all of us in America to be happy and to be safe. Um, and hopefully uh, the resistance uh, will be able to have enough victories in the coming months that they'll get international attention. I really think they just need momentum um, and they'll be able to get things going. I do not believe it would be difficult to defeat the Taliban. In fact, I believe that citizens, if they're allowed to legally, uh, could just do it on their own uh, by supporting the resistance. Um, that's how easy of a fight I think it would be. You wouldn't even necessarily have to say, oh, well, this is the job of the U.S. government. If NGOs around the world said, hey, we're going to support the resistance, I think the Taliban would fall pretty rapidly. Yeah, yeah and I think, you know, there are so many aspects to this debacle. One was the removal of the military first uh, versus uh, leaving them to last, uh, the air base, Bagram, that was shut down too, too prematurely. And the others, uh, I've talked to folks that were in the military in Afghanistan that told me, that, yes, they were given American technology to use for years, but, you know, it's like they were kept getting the fish, but they were never taught to fish. They didn't know how to continue it and maintain the technology and 
use it on their own. And that's why, you know, uh, Biden had the audacity to say that they threw off their uniforms and didn't defend themselves. No, they they knew they no longer had eyes and ears on where the Taliban were because the technology was unplugged and they no longer had the ability from what I understand. Is, is that correct? That's true. Yeah. yeah, and and every Afghan member of the military will tell you the same thing. In fact, most of the people that he claims didn't fight fought previously up until that point. Yeah. But once the U.S. was pulling out and all of their training, all of their logistics was dependent upon American support in the form of our military or in the form of contractors, they said, well, why would I die in a, in a fight that I know I'm going to lose for a government that I don't feel really represents me? I'm going to go back to my neighborhood protect my family, and odds are be even more effective in that capacity rather than meeting the Taliban in this big battle that you know you're going to lose. It makes more sense in that situation to go home, protect your family, and then wait for a guerrilla war or an insurgency against the Taliban to start and get involved that way. So, um, so and, and but yeah. In the in the next in, in this the, in the couple minutes we have left in the next segment, I want to talk to you about, you know, for those people who think that somehow the Afghanistan debacle was just a, a isolated screw up, it's not isolated. the The Biden administration has clearly been using the same pro Islamist, anti American method of not only it's no longer soft power, it's no power, it's withdrawal of power. I mean, some say, well, Biden administration is not that far away from where Trump was when it comes to withdrawing from Syria, Afghanistan. No, we left Syria with with a clear point that if necessary, the Trump administration told him and Pompeo especially said we would do what's necessary to protect our allies. And so as you look now, let's go beyond that to your larger expertise, expertise, Iran, Iran now, according to the Free Beacon, has more cash than it's had in 20 years. Just in the last eight, nine months, it's, it's gathered a, a significant amount of cash. We see Hezbollah stronger than ever. Lebanon now is basically being run entirely by Iran. The Syrian regime is now all of a sudden, and, and this is probably a different subject I do want to talk to you about, what's the UAE doing having meetings with Assad? You know, maybe it's self-preservation. I don't know. But let's talk first about Iran and sort of the Shia axis that, that now is unhinged unleashed as they try to sort of reinvigorate the so-called nuclear deal? Sure. Well, in the broader capacity, the Middle East really seems to look at trends. Uh, so you may talk about the Iranian nuclear program, the Iranian sponsorship of terrorism, but how the region reacts to that is going to be looking, they're going to be looking at, well, is the trend in favor of the Iranian axis or is it in favor of the peace axis? And notice that there haven't been any countries that joined the Abraham Accords since the Biden administration came on. And all the leaks and all the public indications were that there were four or five countries ready to sign and sign right up. But it didn't happen. And, and you can't you have the Iranian regime with the momentum. And they can't. And the Biden administration won't even let anybody call it the Abraham Accords. God forbid there be a legacy. They have to. They call it. I can't even remember the Orwellian term they want to use for it. Some kind of uh, a national agreement. I don't even know what it is. What they're calling it. But uh, when we come back, what do you, I want to talk to you about? You know, sort of what what is the UAE doing talking to Syria? That sort of seems a bizarre bizarre meeting for Assad to have with the foreign minister from the UAE and uh, what's going to settle out we've only had one year of Biden we still have another three years of this mess this is Udi Jasser in the chair for Seth Leibson we'll be right back with Ryan Morrow this is 
Dr. Zudi Jasser in the chair for Seth Leapson. Uh Thanks for joining me. And uh, we are speaking to Ryan Morrow with the Clarion Intelligence Network. He's director of the Clarion Intelligence Network, and he finds extremists inside the U.S. for law enforcement. And he also leads the Afghan Rescue Project. We were talking about how uh, uh, we we use the term, I use the term in medicine, pathic mnemonic, that what's happened in, pa- in Afghanistan is not only about Afghanistan, but globally, uh, the uh, uh, Blinken uh, uh, State Department and uh, the rest of the Biden administration, this is how they're approaching. They're, they're genuflecting to Iran, uh, basically giving uh, Assad's regime a green light like they've never seen before, allowing family members like uh, uh, Rami Makhlouf's son uh, to uh, come into the U.S. and parade around Hollywood with Ferraris. And uh, uh, the, the Middle East is sort of uh, realizing that it's a post-American environment in the Middle East, uh, and uh, so, Ryan, as we look at threat matrices, we've seen uh, multiple uh, attacks with uh, not explosives, but with uh, uh, knife attacks. I think there was one in UK and uh, another in in Europe elsewhere. Uh, bottom line is, is there's little uh, sporadic jihadi attacks, uh, but uh, you know the ideology is seeing that America is no longer to be feared. And uh, uh, as you were mentioning, it's almost a matter of time. God forbid that anything were to happen, but their long game is now unleashed because they don't see a threat from us ideologically. That's true, and it really is, I'm sorry to say, a vindication of Islamist propaganda um, that Americans are so consumed with making money and themselves uh, that they don't really care about the freedom and well-being of others, and they aren't actually strong. And so jihadists around the world are going to look to the Taliban and say, look, the U.S. threw everything they could at the Taliban, even though that's not true. That's the perception. And they're going to view this as a defeat for the United States, which, again, I wouldn't even necessarily call it a defeat. Um, but that's how it's viewed. And what you're going to see happen is, is a wave of homegrown and global radicalization uh, towards Taliban supporting the Taliban, just like you saw with ISIS, because whenever there's a piece of territory, especially if it comes from defeating the enemy, it's interpreted in the Islamic, radical Islamic world that that is Allah giving blessing to them, that they've got Islam figured out. They're doing the right thing. And, uh, and so that, yeah. Yeah, so, but let me, let me quick remind folks that when we were doing the, the muscular thing, uh, be it uh, um, in Iraq, defending the, the Kurds, uh, be it defending uh, other victims of Islamist militancy across the planet, we were told that that was fueling radical Islam. The left at the time was saying that the fuel for radical Islam was militancy, that somehow if we genuflected that they would then, that we were causing terrorism, when in fact, I think the reality is, as you say, it's the opposite, which is for those of us from the Middle East, uh, our families, uh, the tribalism that's there. Uh, it's clear that, uh, uh, as as uh, I think it was Smith that wrote uh, the book on the strong horse, talking about bin Laden and others, that they saw us in the West as the weak horse. Uh, but yet, you know, the, the left still holds on to this idea that somehow American strength is what breeds terrorism and not our weakness. 
Right. They confuse backlash from people who would hate us no matter what because their ideology requires them to. They want to conquer the globe and put it under a theocracy. Um, and they conflate that with the anti-Americanism that will happen as a result of U.S. military action, even though that usually wins us more friends than enemies. But there are some people who will be turned against us because war is messy. Uh, and so what the hard left and even the elements of the hard right will say is that uh, because there's anti-American elements responding to U.S. military actions, that's what's fueling terrorism. But th- th- that's too much of a jump. It's not like someone says, I don't like what the U.S. did. Therefore, I believe in killing every gay person on Earth and killing all the Jews and doing all of this. It- it's actually kind of two separate things. Um, but I think there is a-, a certain middle ground here that's very viable uh, that Reagan figured out perfectly. Uh, which is that the U.S. can be strong by supporting local forces uh, and be extremely effective like we were in Afghanistan in 2001. Uh, and maybe doing these big counterinsurgency campaigns is something uh, to be avoided. Re- regardless of what someone thinks of that, I think politically, I don't see us doing any type of o- big occupations or land invasions or ground campaigns. For decades. Yeah, and I, uh, and they, uh, can I you, think that's probably a good thing. I'm, can you stay with us another segment, Ryan? Sure. Okay, so when sure. we come back, obviously I could not agree more that there's no military solution. And I, we were saying this from, uh, you know, 2002, that ultimately, yes, go in and wipe out al-Qaeda, but there's no military. You can't bomb Islamism, political Islamist Sharia state ideology out of them. It needs to be defeated ideologically, and maybe now we're starting to get it. But the reality is bin Laden was post-Clinton. This is Zudi Jasser filling in for Seth Leapson on the Seth Leapson Show. Great to be with all of you. We are talking to uh, Ryan Murrow with the uh, Clarion Intelligence Network and the uh, Afghan Relief Project. Um, It is great to be with you, Ryan. Thanks for being here. Let's talk about the fact that there's no military solution. You and I and others have been talking about that for a long time, but you don't win wars by only playing defense. We've had virtually no offense when it comes to fighting radical Islam, promoting ideas of liberty. You've been on the ground talking to folks in Afghanistan. You had a project in Saudi Arabia. I saw that just fantastic. Feel free to plug that. I think it's amazing work you're doing there. Um, But uh, across the the Muslim majority countries, I don't like to call it the Muslim world, but the Muslim majority countries, I think there are a lot of folks on the ground. You'd be surprised what type of result would happen if we just simply allowed them to fight their own wars, to fight their own battles. Afghanistan's turning into a civil war, but ultimately if we can prevent the Qataris and the Iranians and the Chinese of the world, those governments from interfering, then just let them sort of self-determine their future, that that might... Uh, allow a a real spring versus the disasters that happened with the Islamists taking over from Libya and Tunisia and elsewhere. But uh, so so, what do you think is the next step forward when it comes to policy? Is there any light in this tunnel that's uh, the Biden administration? Sure. Uh, well, I I did think it would be against um, it wouldn't be necessarily what the Biden administration intended. Uh, but if this comes down to us supporting the Northern Alliance, again, now called the National Resistance Front, uh, that is a much more viable strategy than what we were doing before by focusing on national forces that uh, the members of which didn't always feel connected to because they're more focused on local governance. Um, and, and who can blame them for that? You, you know your community that you live with. 
Uh, and when you know that the national government is corrupt, um, and it may be an improvement upon previous ones, but you're not going to feel like that's an entity you want to die for or really has your best interests at heart. But your local community uh, might. Um, and so I, I felt that if we withdrew from Afghanistan and then the result was that we quickly swung behind the national resistance front, then it would actually end up altogether being a positive thing. Now, that's not what has happened. Uh, we withdrew in a very reckless way and, and frankly, a stupid way, uh, a heartless way. And we're missing the opportunity to fix our strategy by saying, look at what worked in 2001. It's, it's presented right there, easy for us to do. Let's just do that again. And then the stuff that didn't work, we just stop that. <laughs> I mean, it's really that simple. Um, but in a broader way, I hope that what happens is is that there's a realization that we tend to look at ideological efforts as supporting a military mission, and now we have to reverse it, see the military as supporting an ideological um, mission against the adversaries. So when you're doing drone strikes uh, against al-Qaeda or ISIS, it's to advance our ideological goals of defeating them as opposed to supporting locals and engaging in the ideological war in order to achieve a, a military objective, um, yeah. which is really the Reagan philosophy and has been what you and I have been arguing for for a long time. And I think that America might be forced into uh, adopting that option just because nothing else has public support and everything else has already been tried. I, I could not agree more. I think that is clearly a template that would work uh, as, as it evolves. Um, but you know the the stomach, if you will, or the appetite uh, for a longer term vision is very difficult to muster nowadays, as we're suffering from so many domestic issues right now. Uh, but when you look globally, uh, you know the uh, reality is that um, you know the Islamists uh, have tried every time they you know no, they've almost lost despite our. Uh, handing them the cash, handing them the platforms, and yet they've still lost in Tunisia. They've lost in Egypt. Tell me about the UAE and Syria. Now, I've been, listen, I came around to not supporting these monarchies and dictatorships, but uh, obviously, you know, the the disasters that loomed after the, uh, you know, sort of the mobocracies that happened after the Arab awakening sort of realized that the only reason Tunisia worked a little bit and it has been somewhat functional is because that monarch there was more benevolent. He didn't destroy civil society before he left like Assad is doing. So having said that, the UAE and its Abraham Accords and others seem to be maybe moving in that direction, uh, talking about reform, talking about imams that were uh, speaking out against anti-Semitism to support Israel, really seemed to be something that uh, was going to bear some fruit. And yet now they're meeting with Assad. Well, what's going? Why would they do that? Uh, who's working with Iran? They're one of their enemies. I, I don't get it. It seems like politically they're they're trying to find their identity, and, and it being a spot between uh, looking like a, a puppet of the United States, being fully aligned with us, but also still being strong against their adversaries. Uh, and so it seems like, and you can see this in, from elements in Iraq and, and other countries as well, Saudi Arabia. It seems like what they want to say, position themselves as, is say our identity is not that we are an extension of any foreign power, and therefore we'll stand strong against our enemies, but we're also willing to play ball with them too. 
um, because we're not in a in a battle where I'm trying to destroy you, Assad, or destroy you, the Iranian regime. I'm just trying to make you leave me alone. And so there's two kind of planks to their policy, and that's why it's it's so seemingly contradictory. And I think what the UAE is doing is similar to what the Saudis are doing, where they equate their ability to invest in a country with their ability to manipulate that country. So they're hoping that they can get Assad to ditch Iran because for some reason every few years we all the whole world gets convinced that that'll actually happen. But I think what they're saying is, is or what they're thinking is, is maybe we get Assad away from Iran, but even if he doesn't, us getting in there economically and having our influence is still a good thing for us. It expands our influence, and, and over time there could be a positive outcome. Well, I, I that I could not disagree with that. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. But as an American, as a Syrian American, uh, as having family that were miles away from chemical weapons attacks, uh, uh, that yeah. uh, it it is. Uh, I can tell you, I know of not a single Syrian that will stomach anyone that uh, uh, will work in some type of public method with the criminality, with the crimes against humanity that's been done by that regime. You know, you mentioned the Saudis. There was an impact study put out about uh, the changes in textbooks in the Saudis that was reviewed this year. And for the first time, you know, I was on the U.S. Commission for Religious for International Religious Freedom for four years, and we tried to get the Saudis to change things. And during the Obama administration, they basically told us to pound sand, and they didn't do anything but yet pretended they did, and they really did nothing. This report recently out shows that they actually did remove a lot of the anti-Semitism. They removed some of the supremacist dogma and the interpretations from some of the uh, higher-ups of the uh, Sharia state that is the the Saudi regime. And uh, it's interesting. Um, what what are is there really changes happening there? Now Salman uh, is is looking to be really more of a sort of a mafia type, you know, strongman than really a reformer. So I'm not sure what to make of what's happening in Saudi. And we'll have 30 seconds, and we'll finish with after the segment. If you could stay stay with me one last segment. Sure. All right. So we'll be right back. We're talking to Ryan. I want to talk to him last about Saudi, and I'd like him to plug the work he's doing about looking archaeologically at some of the remains in Saudi Arabia and what he's found there. This is Zudi Jasser filling in for Seth Leibson on The Seth Leibson Show. This is Zudi Jasser finishing out the hour with Ryan Morrow, one of the experts uh, nationally and a good friend. Uh, he's with the Clarion Intelligence Network and has done unbelievable work uh, rescuing uh, Afghanis uh, uh, recently from Afghanistan, American citizens and other allies. I want to finish talking about Saudi Arabia. I think Saudi Arabia is not only, you know, sort of where all healing and all cancer starts when it comes to radical Islam and uh, tr- its treatment. And we saw some recent changes in their textbooks seen by an impact SE study uh, that was um, actually amazing at some of the, the uh, clerical interpretations uh, that were deeply anti-Semitic, misogynistic, that were removed. Now, I still don't see the reforms. They removed it, and just like you can't white out Mein Kampf and make it not Nazi, you you have to uh, uh, also put forth a defense of liberty and freedom in order for there to be real reform, which is what we talk about in the Muslim reform movement. But, Ryan, tell us in the last uh, two minutes here what what you did in Saudi Arabia, and is this real, what's happening now in the last year? Uh, Sure, so... 
Um, I put a film out on YouTube that's gotten about uh, on different platforms about eight million views, uh, and it's I only spent about twenty bucks on advertising. Like, uh, so it's been really successful, and it's quite well known now in Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's titled "Finding the Mountain of Moses: The Real Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia." So, on YouTube, you just type in "Finding the Mountain of Moses" and it'll pop up. And basically, it's about this new, visually shocking evidence that the Exodus story is true. And we've just been looking in the wrong spot, and the real Mount Sinai is actually in Saudi Arabia. There's all this just amazing evidence uh, related to the different steps of the Exodus story that can be seen there. Um, But as part of a bigger picture here, uh, like you pointed out, Saudi Arabia really is changing. And... I was cynical, as I think everyone else was, when we were hearing MBS, the crown prince, saying, oh, we're going to do this and do that and, and try to modernize things, because we've heard that story. Uh, but so far, uh, he's been delivering. Uh, like he said, there's been a cleansing of textbooks, of sermons. There's the Saudi state TV that was normally anti-Semitic is now emphasizing the history of the Jews in, in Arabia to show that there's a common history there. All this really kind of smart messaging meant to shape the society uh, and, and have an ideological argument that's very good. Is it an endorsement of separation of mosque and state or anything like that? No. I mean, they're not, it, it's not the Muslim reform movement of Saudi Arabia, <laughs> but it, it's certainly a huge jump forward from what I think any of us expected to see. Uh, and it, it's basically saying, yeah, we still need to be an Islamic state, but that means we can also be modern and, and westernized and, and basically do whatever we want. Uh, well, that argument will eventually collapse, but it, but that's argument being put forth, and it's, it's very popular. Well, thank you. You were so generous with your time, Ryan. Uh, follow him on Twitter at Ryan Morrow, R-Y-A-N-M-A-U-R-O, and all the great work he does. Uh, I'm proud to call you a friend, and thanks for your time. God bless you. Stay strong. We'll be back next hour with Congressman David Schweikert. We'll get caught up with him on uh, all things that are Washington and relevant to us here in Arizona. And also we'll be joined at the end of the hour next hour with with Raheel Raza from Canada. This is Zudi Jasser in the chair for Seth. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.